0: Well, it is so good to be with you this morning. I hope that you have worshipped already through song and that you are ready to uh, dive into God's word to hear what he has to say to us this morning. Um, we're talking about the stuff that we need to carry with us every day when it comes to following Jesus. You know, and we're making our list and checking it twice for our international trip and making sure, you know, we've got extra underwear and, you know, enough clothes to make it and whether you have allergy medicines or stuff that you need to pack and uh, whether you got everything. And, and you know, you kind of do that every day. You know, you, ladies, you make sure you've got your purse and guys, your keys, and your wallet. We don't sometimes make sure that we take the Word with us everywhere we go. And so uh, over last week and today, we're dealing with what I think is one of the most vitally important and yet practical topics of carrying the Word with us throughout all of life, and that's understanding God's will. And last week, we talked about this really incredible and precious truth that we serve an awesome, incredible, and guiding God. That is good news for us because He guides us. He promises to give us direction, and so that's a really good thing for us to know. Now, here's the challenge. Every day, you have hundreds of decisions that you need to make, every day. So this morning, I wore a suit, and it was a black suit, and I ended up wearing blue socks because I didn't turn my lights on. That was a, that was a bad decision, you know. And uh, I had a tie to wear, and I needed to decide, um, was I going to make decaf coffee? And I didn't, so you all better watch out. I'm going to talk fast. There's decisions that we have to make. So we know that we have a God who has promised to guide us, and we know that we have hundreds of decisions that we need to make. So armed with this truth that God guides us, we crack open our copy of the scriptures to see exactly what God wants us to eat for breakfast, and hmm, nothing there. Now, unless you turn to the book of Second Hesitations, there's there's some good devotional material there. Not as good as first opinions, or the book of I say so, chapter 13, is one of my nearest and dearest. We rightly look to the Bible for guidance, but let me let me let me let you in on a, a trade secret here. Okay? Some preachers don't know this, but I, I have learned this. The Bible is not about me. It is not about me. There is no book of I say so where I can look and find out everything about God's plan. So here's the question. If God has promised to guide us, how do we get God's guidance for all of the daily decisions that we have to make? You kind of feel the the weight of the question? God's promised to guide us, and yet when we go to look, there's not as much in the instruction book as we might want. Two things very important for us to start off with. When we talk about God's will, the old answer is, Or the traditional answer is a really good one. God's will has two facets to it. There is God's revealed will, stuff that he has revealed, that he has told us very clearly, and there is his secret will, things that he hasn't told us that he's, guess what, not going to tell you. This is a really important distinction between God's revealed will, what he said, and his secret will, which he knows, but he doesn't share we can put it this way. And this is, this, this is one of those, it'll make you think. There are things that God knows that we also know. But there are far more things that God knows that we will never know. Did you get that? There are things that God knows that we know. That's awesome. We know things that God knows. But God is God, and he knows far more things that We don't know and we may never know. So here's the issue. There are pious Christians who want to follow the Lord, who fall face first on the path of life because they want God to tell them his secrets. And if I'm I'm not going to follow you if you're not going to tell me everything, that's not right. Why would God reveal something that is part of his secret will? Then it's not a secret. Moreover, he is God, He is our creator, and we are not God. <laughs> we're finite, we're creatures. So why do we waste so much time trying to get God to reveal things that He's not going to reveal? You do it. I've done it. It's a big deal. So here, here's, here's the truth I want to promise, and then we're going to camp out here under our second point for quite some time. I'm going to assert that knowing God's will is far easier than the complicated mess that we've turned it into. That's a bold statement, isn't it? Knowing God's will is far easier than this complicated thing that we've turned it into. Well, you know, I just, uh, I got all these decisions to make and I, I just want to be right smack in the center of God's will. Well, God's sovereign and big and he, he knows everything. There's some degree, how can you be out of God's will? I mean, it's, it's amazing, but there are secret things that we don't know and we've got to be okay with that. Now, when we talk about knowing God's will being easier than the mess we've turned it into, um, who can I pick on this morning? let uh, see who, who stops making eye contact with me first. So, Ben. You shouldn't have looked at me, bro. That was a bad choice. Okay, I'll pick on Ben here because he's in the spray zone on the front row. And um, let's say... This morning, oh, I just kind of, I'm in a weird mood and I'm going, should I hug Ben or should I kill Ben? <laughs> you like the first one better? Okay. Come, all right, come on. No, I'm kidding. Um, when, when we have a choice, an option between something that is clearly righteous and something that is clearly unrighteous, knowing God's will isn't quite so hard, is it? Right? I mean, when you're you're... Having to choose between two extremes, something that is clearly immoral and something that is clearly righteous, it's, you don't have to think very hard to think about that. However, it starts to get a little more complicated when you're not choosing between something that's good and evil. What if you have to choose between two things that are good? How do you know God's will? This was a huge issue for me in college because I had to choose which supermodel I wanted to marry. Marcy... Or Cindy Crawford. And, um, you know, God just made it really clear that I chose wisely because you have all of these decisions to make when it comes to it. And that's, I'm being, I'm being funny. It wasn't Cindy Crawford. It was, it was somebody else. Um, <laughs> but you understand the question. What do you do when there's two good options and neither one is sinful or immoral, but you have two, you have two good things to choose? What's the process now of how God guides when my choices are between a good and a gooder. A better option. But they're both good. So here's my concern, okay? Last week, we established the principle that we serve a God who guides in what is the predominant way that he guides? Through his word, through his spirit, by the word. When we start talking, you know, we, we hear that, and people come up and say, amen, I believe it, man, the Bible's awesome. And then when it comes to knowing God's will, we might use some things that are biblically based, but these practices, these weird things that we do to try to manipulate God to understand his will, we, 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 we devolve into putting aside Christ and the scripture and devolving into almost like a New Age mysticism that the Bible nowhere commands us to do. It gets really weird And as we abandon the Bible as our primary source of guidance and the hopes that God in some kind of mystic fashion is going to speak to us apart from his word, then people start to imply that they know the secret to get God to reveal his secrets. And then they start teaching as commandments things and practices that you are supposed to do that God has never encouraged. And then you start finding God's will where God's will doesn't exist. So you might have heard things like this. If you just pray with enough faith, God will tell or give you whatever you want. Now, is praying in faith good? Absolutely. But prayer, the prayer of faith without purity of motives isn't going to get you anywhere. Prayer is not some kind of manipulative relationship with God. And what's even worse is there are people who say, well, you know, if you didn't get what you asked for, you must not have asked with enough faith. So now, not only do you not have what you want, but now you're a bad Christian. That's terrible theology. That's terrible theology. Oh, well, if you just prayed with enough faith, it'll happen. God will give it to you. Or uh, bad news. Um, Yeah, I've heard people say, if you just fast, right, pun intended, God will spill the beans. Sorry. (laughs) I didn't get that one approved by my wife. Uh, I apologize. You know, if you just fast, right, God will tell you his secrets. But here's the deal. Giving something up for God is not a way to manipulate getting something from God well, God, I gave up Facebook for a month. What are you going to give me in return? We don't barter with God to get his secret knowledge. It's a secret. He's not going to tell you. You have to figure out the wisest course of action to live. He's not just going to say, well, you know, oh, flip it open to Ezra chapter 2, verse 66, and hey, here's how I'm going to live my life today. There are principles that we derive. Uh, perhaps if you just wait on him the right way, it'll be revealed. Well, here's the deal. If it's a secret and he doesn't intend to reveal it, you might be waiting on God for a really long time because he's not going to reveal it. It's the secret things that belong to him. People get really interested in like civil engineering because they start paying attention to ingresses and egresses of buildings. Oh, this window was closed, but the door opened, and then the door opened, and then the, it jumped out the window. It's not bad to talk about those kinds of things, to recognize how God works through providence, but for us to say, verily, verily, thus saith the Lord when we're looking at just providential circumstances, it's not really the most valid way for us to understand God's will. Some people aren't so interested in architecture they get into agriculture, and they want to go out and get a sheep skin it alive and put a fleece out. Let's test God and see if it's wet in the morning. Bible never commands Christians to put God to the test when it comes to figuring out His will. And personally, I think it'd be kind of gross to do that to a sheep. So, um... That's not a good way to figure out God's will. The end result is that we begin to declare things, God's will, that aren't. It's like the guy, the farmer from South Carolina, really needed it to rain on his crops, so he beseeched the Lord in this most earnest prayer. Waited all day, didn't rain. Goes home at night, turns on the weather center, and sees that it rains in Texas. And he goes, glory to God, it's an answer to prayer." He found what he was looking for. If it didn't happen to his crops, it happened somewhere else. And now he baptizes that and calls it God's will. And the truth is we're really just finding what we're looking for and manipulating the circumstances. The point is this. We have to be very, very, very exceedingly humble in asserting things to be God's will that are not clearly revealed or confirmed in his word. So you tell me God's told you something. Give me the chapter and the verse. What is the address for what God has told you? Because how do you know that it's God speaking to you and not the bad burrito that you had at Taco Bell last night? Some of you, and some of you hear from God based upon your mood. You know, God said, smite them all. Well, somebody didn't get enough sleep last night. Oh, God loves me. Somebody got a good night's rest. And so don't, don't be so demonstrative in saying, oh, I know that it's a, here's the principle. If it's not in his word, be humble in declaring it his will. If it's not in the word, be humble. You might be wrong. And, and the problem is, we're no better than people who are into astrology and the zodiac, because we try to read the tea leaves of circumstance. In the same way, we just get to like throw God into the equation. Now God's sovereign and he's in charge. But when we talk about finding a, a solid foundation for knowing his will, there is no solid foundation apart from his word. It just doesn't happen. So these practices, waiting on God, uh, praying in faith, fasting, uh, kind of looking at our circumstances, these practices practices aren't necessarily wrong, but we cannot normalize the fantastic ways that God has spoken in the past and normalize them for our experience today. When's the last time you ran into a talking donkey? And if you say last week at church, then see me after the service. God... (laughs) God has said the primary the primary way that he has spoken to us is by his word through his son and in his scripture. That's it. That's why it's that simple. So, if you want to know God's will, get your pens out. I'm going to give you a couple scripture verses. They're going to be here. Write them in your notes, keep track of them on your your YouVersion app, two that are hugely important. I can't I can't even begin to say how colossally important these two verses are. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Look at, look at this. So that you may know or discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. What's the nicest way to say this? Because this is not nice. And I'm talking to myself as well as everybody else. Part of the process of knowing God's will is being transformed, having your mind transformed. So if you are not following Jesus, but you shake your fist to demand that he reveal his will to you, the reason you don't know his will is you're not obeying what you already do know. Is that good? an amen? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may know God's will. And there are Christians who say, I got no boss but me. And then they go, why do I struggle with knowing God's will? It's because you're not obeying what you know. The transformation of the mind and the knowledge of God's will go hand in hand. So don't expect to know what God's purpose for your life is if you don't obey what he's already told you. That's hugely important. And then he makes it, like this is awesomely clear. This is like cookies on the bottom shelf um, where I can get them clear. 1 Thessalonians 4. Three, this is God's will. Your sanctification. Specifically that you abstain from sexual immorality. Don't do anything to make people think that your sanctification is something that you're playing with. Avoid the appearance of evil. Don't, 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 don't do anything to get involved in sexual immorality because the reason that sexual immorality is bad is not because sexual sins are worse, it's because your sanctification is precious. Any sin messes with your sanctification. And and God is saying here, all right, you all want to know my will. It's really simple. I want you to be holy like Jesus is holy. Period, exclamation mark, end of the sentence. You know what it is now. God's will for you is to be more like Jesus. It's your sanctification. So how does this work out? There's tons more Bible verses we can share. I've just got uh, five or six here that we're going to talk about. Ephesians chapter 6 Verse six, talking about how this works out. Uh, He begins by talking about God's will and our work. He says, don't work only while you're being watched to please men. Rather, do God's will from your heart. Boy, that's an interesting verse. He says, you're not working for a paycheck or for a quota. You are working to glorify God by the work that you do. So you don't work harder when your boss is watching. You work hard all the time because God's eyes are always on you. You work to please God, and you'll please man as a byproduct. You can work to please man and never please God. Man, that's fascinating. So God's will is for you to do hard work. Now, nobody's going to amen that. Hard work? I thought he's supposed to make my life easy. He's telling me to do hard work. He's saying doing hard work is the blessing. He's giving you the ability. You glorify him by working hard and pleasing him. Doing it, I love this, from your heart. Like I can, I can do it with my hands, but you can do it with your hands and not do it with your heart. Do it from your heart. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. I love this one. Give thanks in everything for this is God's will for you. Anybody need that verse this week? Everything. What is God's will for you? To be sanctified, to obey so that you know God's will. The more you obey, the more you know. Uh, To work hard and to be joyful. Give thanks in everything. God's will for you is not to be a grumpy Gus. You know who the grumpy Gus's are? They're really easy to figure out. Just have a conversation with them. And I understand, listen, I'm I'm not being insensitive. There are bad things that happen. And there are people here that just recently bad things have happened. But there are, a way, there are ways to talk about, God thing, about bad things in a way in which you go, oh, woe is me. The God of the universe is so busy with terrorism and economics and you know, poverty that he's just forgotten about me. Or, yeah, maybe he's in charge of everything, but not my life. There is a way that is very faithless to talk about the difficulty that we endure. And yet this says, even through the hardships that you endure, Give thanks in, what's the word? Everything. Your losses, your setbacks, your injuries, your diagnoses, your layoffs, your miscarriages, your death. Everything. It is God's will for you to give him thanks that he is good and still in charge when it doesn't seem like he is. God's will. First Peter 2.15. I love this one. Everybody likes to dog out the church and everyone likes to talk about how bad Christians are hypocrites. God says, here, here's my will. It is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Dude, that's an awesome verse. We, we, people may not actually investigate the scriptures, but they'll figure out really quickly whether we truly believe what we believe by how we live and whether we do good works. Not in order to get ahead. We're already ahead. We are sons and daughters of the king. We don't have to do anything. We have the father's resources to bless the world. So that's why we obey. Not because we're trying to outdo our neighbor. We do it because our God is awesome. He's given us a new spirit, and we have the opportunity to obey him from the heart. Why would you not want to do good works? And when you do good works, you are doing God's will because you're silencing the foolish ignorance of people who are denying the truth of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 4, verse 2, live the rest of the time no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. Your motivation in life is not to get, get the biggest payroll that you can, not to get the biggest house that you can, not to get the most expensive car that you can. You're no longer living for the lusts of men. You are living for the will of God. Like that's your desire Finally, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. This is a tough one. Those who suffer according to the will of God. It's not so much that God, through the gospel, the ministry of the Spirit, the ever-present intercession of His Son, gets us out of bad situations as much as He gets us through. So some of your suffering is because you made a dumb decision. Okay, anybody been there? Suffered the consequence of a bad decision? Okay, that's your fault. Um, Some of it is God's will. Bless you when people persecute you for righteousness' sake. Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right we don't do what is right because God rub-a-dub-dub makes our life easy. We, 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 we do what is right because we serve a good God, a faithful creator, who even through adversity never leaves us or forsakes us. So when we talk about God's will and wanting to know God's will, I'm convinced in 98% of the circumstances we're asking the wrong question. God, I want to know your secret will, when he's already revealed his will. It's kind of like asking, hey, uh, I, need, I need somebody smart here. What color is the equator? It's a wrong question. It doesn't get any better when you say, well, how does the equator smell? It's the wrong question. And, and we get paralyzed because of what we don't know. And instead, we should focus on what we do know. God has revealed everything that he thinks we need to know. And I think he's probably a better authority on what we need to know than we are. I'm okay with God having the stuff that is God's stuff. He knows it all. He just hasn't chosen to reveal. It. And he's told us very plainly, he has given us everything we need. Second Peter 1.3, we talked about this last week. It says, um, God's divine power has given us everything necessary for life and for godliness. How? through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. In Christ, the living word and the written word, he's given us everything we need for life and for godliness. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, says, All scripture is inspired not by man, but by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for training, uh, for, uh, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the people of God may be complete or mature, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy doesn't say, oh, yeah, I forgot something that's not included here. He's given us everything. He's inspired his word. So here's the question, okay? God has revealed things. God has secret things. We get paralyzed by what we, we don't know. Does that mean that God is not concerned about all the piddly little stuff that makes up life? No. God's, God's plan for our life is far more meticulous than you would ever imagine. How do we know that? Because the Bible says that the smallest and insignificant bird that falls from the sky does so with his knowledge. He says that the very hairs of our head are numbered. God, God knows you so well in the situations that you're going through that he knows how many hairs you combed out of your head this morning when you were getting ready for church. I mean for me, he knows how many whiskers went down the drain when I shaved this morning. That's meticulous. That's that's crazy knowledge. He's very concerned about everything in our life. He, he just knows that there would be some knowledge that would be dangerous for us to have. So here's a very simple, you're going to see this, you're not going to be able to, to follow along super, super, super well. I don't know if you'll be able to read that. This is a very simple three-part visual image chart that I think is very helpful for, for helping us to understand how do we know God's will. And there's three categories. Let's start off over here on the far right-hand side. And I call these matters of righteousness. So, you know, I, I come back to um, Ben. And, uh, you know, I just got an issue with bow ties. You know, they make me really angry. And especially, if that one's not red. But if it's bright red, I'm like a bull. You know, I, don't, I don't, like, don't like those bow ties. So, like, really, and I mean this from the heart in Christian love, I want to murder Ben. I do. Sweet Jesus, please help me to know when exactly I should do it? Should I lie in ambush? Should I do it with my car? Should I go get, you know, somebody's AK47? Should I just, you know, at the next barbecue that we have, should I just poison them? Like I don't need to pray about that because God has already spoken about what his will is. It's a matter of righteousness. How do you know it's a matter of righteousness? Because there is typically a thou shalt or a thou shalt not attached to it. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. You you should be gentle and kind, self-control, all these kinds of issues. So it becomes very clear that you are just simply obeying what God has already revealed. You have no need for additional guidance. You just have to obey. If you do something that you're not supposed to do or you don't do something, did I get that right? If you do something that you're not supposed to do or don't do something that you're supposed to do, you've sinned. So you want to know God's will, matters of righteousness, really clear, you don't need to pray about it. Now, that sounds impious, but why would you pray about murdering when he's already told? It's a waste of breath. Don't pray about it. Just obey. Don't murder. Like, like that's really an option. I hope that's not. If there is, we need to send you counseling somewhere. Um, there's much more constructive ways to deal with your anger. Those are not all of the issues that you face throughout the day, okay? So let's go all the way over to the left-hand side. These are matters of triviality. So let's say you go to Walmart, and um, you need a new shirt. Okay, so let's apply biblical principle so we get the stewardship question out of the way. Both shirts are the same price, same quality. So they're, they're really not better or worse, they're equivalent, and one is black and one is red. I can't do that, that's Georgia colors. One is black and one is white. Um, dear God of the universe for whom all knowledge is at a present point in time, I beseech you to reveal to me which shirt I should buy. Should you pray about it? We've already established that there is a biblical principle at play of stewardship. So you know, perhaps if one was a $20 shirt and one was a $60 shirt, perhaps it would be wiser to buy the cheaper shirt, just as a principle of stewardship, they're the same price. None is better or worse So there's really no seeking of God's will because it's not a moral issue. It's a matter of triviality. You know, which which toothbrush should you buy? Which parking space? You know, everybody, it's funny because when we pray, we all think we know God's will. The God's will for the parking space is the one that's up closest at Walmart. When he's going, no, 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 you ate too much pecan pie last night. You were all the way in the back. You need to walk. Oh, that can't be God's will. He wants me to have the front row seat. That's crazy. So here's the deal. You don't really need guidance when it comes to trivial stuff. Just pick one. Pick one. And I'm not dogging prayer. It's very pious. If you want to spend more time in prayer, you can pray about every trivial uh, decision that you need to make, or you can just, like, live normal life and make a a choice. So on this side, there is no seeking of God's will necessary because it's already revealed it. Over here, there's no seeking of His will necessary because it's trivial. It doesn't matter. Pick a shirt. Which one do you like better, the black one or the white one? Not all of your decisions fit into either of those two categories. So in the middle, you have matters of good judgment. This is where the seeking of God's will becomes really important. Now, we have to remember that Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. He's not going to reveal something that is his secret. But there are ways that we can seek to discern God's will that are very helpful. So here you've got, Two good options. I've got two job opportunities. I've got two supermodels. I've got whatever, two good, two, two good used cars. I've got two, two whatever, two, two, two options. And they're, they're both good. One's not right, one's not wrong. And there's, there's all kinds of decisions. Who are you going to marry? Where are you going to work? Where are you going to live? What church are you going to go to? And I want to tell you something here. The the, the thing that you're doing here is the stuff that we've written at the bottom. You're applying biblical principles. You're taking stuff from the matters of righteousness and you're trying to apply. Matters of good judgment are not matters of righteousness, because there is no thou shalt or thou shalt not. Thou shalt take this job. It's not in the Bible. Thou shalt marry this woman. Not in the Bible. Secret. But apply biblical principles, seek wise counsel, see what other godly people think. Search your motives. Am I being selfish? Uh, you're human, yes, probably. So how do, you, how do you remove self from this? And then don't feel guilty that you're making the wrong decision because it's not in the moral category. It's not an issue of righteousness. It's an issue of wisdom. It's an issue of good judgment. So listen, here's the deal. You think you're applying biblical principles, you've sought wise counsel, and then like a year down the road, you realize that that decision you made that looks so wise hasn't panned out. It's not terrible, but it's not pan- proven to be Quite as wise as he thought it was. You know what you do? You live with the consequences. You trust that God's still involved. He's sovereign. And you're doing the best that you can to follow him. Your motives are pure. You're applying biblical principles. Don't feel guilty. There might be different people that come up with different solutions, and that's okay. As long as they are seeking to apply the scriptures as rigorously as possible. They're searching their motives and they're not being selfish. You just deal with it because that's life. It's very hard prospectively to announce that your decisions are God's will because a lot of times you'll find out retrospectively that they were. It's not just hindsight that proves to be 2020. God's will sometimes is more clear looking backwards. We just sang about that. I will look back and see that you've been faithful. I didn't know it at the time. I'm doing the best that I can to follow you with all my heart. I'm committing my ways to you and trusting that you'll give me the desires of my heart, but I believe that I'm following you as closely as possible. I love the way the scriptures talk about this. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9, Paul talks about how God's will became very clear in retrospect, looking backwards. And he's he's dealing specifically with an issue of a man who was in notorious sin. He was uh, having sexual relationships with his stepmother. So his mom had died, his dad had gotten remarried, and there's not stuff that's appropriate that's happening there. And the church was proud of it. Hey, aren't we great? Aren't we tolerant? Aren't we politically correct? And Paul's like, heck no. He says, turn that guy over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Well, this guy gets booted out of church over this issue because it's so important that he's not living like a Christian should. He needs to, there needs to be a, a shot fired across the bow to bring him back. And in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, he says, now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance for you were grieved as God willed. In 1 Corinthians, when Paul gives the instruction to do it, he does not know how it's going to turn out. Now, there was a letter in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We'll call it 1 Corinthians. It's not in our Bible. We know that it exists because Paul refers to it. So 2 Corinthians is actually the third letter. By the time we get to Second Corinthians, this guy's repentance, because when you, when you are grieved, you go one of two directions. You get worse or you get better. And instead of hardening his heart, this guy's heart got soft to the Lord and he repented. And Paul says, we can look back now. We know we did the right thing, but now we know that your grief led to repentance because of what you've done. We can look back and we can see God's will, and it was for your repentance. Your grief was not just grief that was of no avail. It was grief that led to repentance. The point is being humble like the New Testament Christians in Acts 15, 28. The early church faces one of the most important decisions that it it, it ever faced. And it was the inclusion of Gentiles. And do Gentiles have to become Jews before they can be saved? So they call a council and they get all of the apostles together and they get all the, 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 the men of reputation who are wise and godly and they have to weigh all of the issues here. And in Acts 15, 28, here's what they say when they make this declaration that has impacted the church for thousands of years. It seemed... It, it, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. There's no, thus saith the Lord. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that this is the way that we're going to go. He says elsewhere in Acts 15, it seemed good to the apostles, it seemed good to the leaders, it seemed good to the church, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. It is dripping with a humility that at least admits that maybe they've read things wrong. But they believe in faith that this is what God wants them to do. I cannot throw a better model out for you than what the early church did. To say, we believe. There's there's biblical principles that we're applying. We're trying to make the wisest decision that we can. But we're also not going to be paralyzed by what we don't know. We're going to obey what we do know. We're going to apply it as rigorously as possible. And it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. No selfish motives and so my, my goal here this morning is to change the mental image that you have when it comes to understanding God's will. I think, I think the predominant picture that we have when we think about God's will is that God's will, and like nobody has maps anymore. I mean, I'm talking like a big old folded out Rand McNally. It takes up your whole kitchen table and it's like the entire world in great detail. God's will is not like a road map that shows every little town that you're going to pass through and every country road and every major city street and every interstate. Like we don't know all the options when it comes to making a decision. Instead of thinking of God's will as a map, I think it's far better to think about God's will as a compass that always steers you in the right direction, but you do not necessarily have all the details for every decision that you're going to be facing. Let me just tell you that the compass analogy fits my life a whole lot better than the map analogy because there are a whole lot of things that I don't know, but I know the direction that I want to go in. So think about what it means to change, you know, that God has got like a robotic narrow plan that you cannot, you know, it's like Siri when you get off the way. Hey, you idiot, get back on the road, make a, make a, make a U-turn. You done missed it, you fool. You know, you, you, it's not like that. It's a compass that is going to steer you, and you may get off the path, but you always have a way to find true north. So here's an example. Understanding God's will is a compass and not a road map. Does God care how you drive your car? Now, I'm I'm fitting to go to Medellin. I know that. Right when I conclude, does God care how you drive a car? You can flip to the back of your Bible and look in your concordance, the word car, the word automobile. The closest you're going to get is chariot. Unless you count the disciples who were all in one accord, but I don't think that's what they were talking about. (laughs) I wasn't expecting a groan. Um, Oh. Cars aren't in the Bible. Jesus did not have an owner's manual on automobile operation in the Sermon on the Mount. But the Bible actually has all kinds of things to say about how you drive your car. When we understand that this is not a matter of righteousness, it's a matter of good judgment, listen to these biblical principles. The Bible says you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. You better believe that doesn't just apply to your neighborhood, that applies to how you drive like the person in the lane next to you. Love him. So road rage, out of question. You don't need to pray about it. Oh, I want to run him off the road. No, 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 no. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible says you're supposed to be gentle. Let your gentleness be made known to all men. So instead of, you know, at the red light and seeing if I can get the front part of my car in front of the front part of his car, be gentle. You know, you see the turn signal on, don't speed up. Maybe your gentleness is easing off that accelerator to let somebody in front of you. That's gentleness. The Bible says that you're supposed to be patient. It says that you're supposed to obey the authorities. It says that you're supposed to be hospitable. So like, I am convinced that country music is of the devil, but when my girls are in the car, guess what? Because I want to be hospitable and I want to I, I obey God's will, I'll, I'll let them listen to country music you be hospitable. So like husbands, that means when it comes to the control of the AC and your wife is freezing and you're sweating and <laughs> and it's always that way. It's never reversed in my car. I am dying and she's like got a blanket over there. I'm like, "Why in the world?" It means that unless you have separate controls that in that desire to be hospitable, you're going to honor whoever's in your car with you. It says to practice self-control. So that means when somebody cuts you off, you don't wave with one finger. You don't mutter things that you're not supposed to mutter. You're careful. You see, the Bible's not so concerned about what you drive. You're not going to find, uh, with the exception of the Honda Accord, you're not going to find anything that you can even wrangle with to figure out, what, God, what model of car should I buy? Practice good stewardship, be frugal, honor God, and pick one. The Bible's not so concerned with what you drive, but it speaks volumes to how you drive. How you drive. So what's the point here? Okay, this is the conclusion of a little two-week miniseries. God guides, and God's will is knowable. It is not as complex and mysterious. There are secrets. It's not hard to know. It is trusting God to be God, trusting us to be who we are, investigating his word very deeply to apply it, not just to how we drive, but to every facet of life, and then living life. Living life, getting to it, because we know that God wants us to glorify him in all things. The challenge is applying the Bible in that fashion so that you're doing it. And you're not paralyzed, waiting for God to tell you something that he's never going to tell you. You're content to allow the secret things to belong to the Lord, and you're going to obey what he's revealed. That's what living the Christian life is all about. And if I can't keep you from doing anything wacky or corny, non-biblical, mystical, to try to get God to tell you something that he's not going to tell you, and just simply get you to obey his word, you will experience the blessing of that transformation of your mind in knowing God's will better by simply obeying than crossing your legs and leaving your mouth open and tilting your head at 45 degrees when you pray. Knowing God's will is not that hard. God wants to guide you and he has put the cookies on the bottom shelf for everybody. It is an issue of obeying. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will forgive us for ways that we have blamed you for not revealing yourself clearly enough and it's your fault that we've been as inactive and lazy as disciples as we have been. God, that is blasphemy. You have spoken clearly in your word. You have spoken clearly through your son. You have told us point blank your desires for our sanctification. And we want to go, "Uh, didn't quite get that, God. What What was the plan? Forgive us where we have been dense. Forgive us where we have made something simple, more complex. Forgive us just quite simply for where we have not obeyed. And help us this day to draw a line in the sand to say, We will be a people of your book, and your book alone, and we will obey it. When you tell us to be gentle, we'll be gentle. When you tell us to not let the sun set on our anger, we won't assume that that's for somebody else, but not for me. When you tell us to be generous, we'll open up our pocketbooks. When you tell us to share your word, we'll share your word. When you tell us to live on your word like it's our daily bread, we'll do it. You are so kind and gracious to guide us and to give us a word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Help us to navigate this crazy lost world for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the ways that, um, well, every Sunday, one of the ways that we conclude our worship service is with some time of response. Whether that response is um, kind of praying through music, a musical response back to God, or whether that is an issue of um, coming forward to say that you need to be b- baptized or uh, join the church, there's a variety of ways. But you cannot, you cannot not respond to God's word. Okay? One of the things that I have loved about our church, and this, this ties in to the sermon in a really interesting way okay because when you think about god's one what he clearly has said you want we're going to give you an opportunity to obey this morning and uh, one of the things that i've loved about our church is there are um our church is exceedingly generous and sweetly gracious in the way that we support our youth and children's (laughs) ministries and uh We are making some changes to the way that we handle some fundraisers in a way that I think is really dynamic and really awesome. And I'm going to allow Pastor Reed to come up and talk just briefly about um, what this is, how you can participate and be a blessing to kids that you might not even know.